This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Cambria Lee, your guest host and marketing and brand manager at the ACLU of PA. Pride Month is coming to a close, and as we wave our flags in support of the LGBTQ and T community, it's important to remember that Pride was born out of protest, particularly the Stonewall riots. The LGBTQ and T community was tired of being abused and discriminated against, so they organized what we know today as Pride to keep resistance alive. That's why, in honor of Pride, we want to uplift issues that impact the LGBTQ and T community, such as violence against Black and Brown trans women. On this episode, we are joined by Philadelphia gay news journalist Timothy Swick, Reporters Committee attorney Paula Knutson Burke, and ACLUPA Trans Justice Coordinator Naima Sanchez. They discuss the troublesome and unsolved murder of Niza Mars, police transparency, and the violence that trans people face in our society and criminal legal system. Each conversation was recorded separately throughout the month of June. You can learn more about our trans justice work by joining our email list on our website, aclupa.org, and by following us on the various social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all with the handle ACLUPA. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us on Speaking Freely today. Um, I know we have a lot to talk about, so I'm just going to jump right in and ask some questions. Thank you. Okay. It's a pleasure. You and I, we've been talking a lot about Nyssa Morris, who was a trans woman murdered back in 2002. Um, the case is really troubling because she was in police custody, either at the time of her murder or shortly before she was murdered. And there was an investigation, but um, police claim to have lost the homicide files. Could you just tell our listeners more about the ins and outs of this case and what you've uncovered over the last 18 years of reporting on this tragedy? Oh, yes. Um, Niza Morris was a 47-year-old trans woman of color. She was a beloved member of the Philadelphia LGBTQ community. Um, on a Saturday night in December of 2002, she attended a private Christmas party at the old Key West bar in the neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, she became intoxicated and she had difficulty navigating her way. About 3 a.m. after the bar closed, Niza needed a ride home. She was having difficulty standing without help. A 911 caller asked for an ambulance. Police were dispatched to investigate, and Officer Elizabeth Scala said she would take Niza to 15th and Walnut Streets, where she uh, supposedly thought Niza lived. That was also in Center City, just a few blocks from the old Key West bar. But Niza lived three miles away in West Philly. Shortly after the ride, Passers-by began calling 911 because Niza was lying on the side of the street at 16th and Walnut, unconscious and bleeding from the head. She died two days later. Um, the medical examiner declared the case a homicide due to blunt force head trauma. Niza's homicide remains unsolved. Yes, as you said, um, the police did do a cursory investigation and subsequently lost their homicide file. The district attorney's office and the police did a joint investigation, but many of those records remain off limits to the public. Um, in 2013, the city's police advisory commission, that's like a um, city watchdog agency, mm -hmm. they issued they issued a report urging state and federal investigations of um, Niza's homicide. But so far, um, neither state or federal agency has agreed to investigate the case. Shortly after Niza died, I was given 911 recordings relating to the incident. 
the tapes show that Niza suffered her head injury within 15 minutes of police being dispatched to investigate her. Hmm. But Officer Scala conveyed to the Police Advisor Commission that she was with Niza for about 16 minutes. So that estimate would put Officer Scala squarely in Niza's presence when she suffered her head wound. In other words, the police can't give us an interval of time when they weren't with Niza prior to her head injury, and that's um, extremely concerning to me. Yes, but there haven't been any like formal um, like allegations against the police, right? Um, there's so been no there's been no formal charges. Um, we can't. No, I'm not in a position to say that the police were responsible for for Niza's death, but um, by the same token, um, I can't rule out that possibility either. We simply don't have all the information. Yes, and how how did you um, become involved with this story? And and you've kind of become like the the main reporter that has been following it um, for all these years, almost two decades. So how, how did this kind of come to be and what has kind of kept you going and kind of pressing for more transparency from the police um, just to kind of get that closure for NISA? Well, I became involved as um, a reporter for Philadelphia Gay News. Um, shortly after NISA died, NISA's mother called me at the office um, and she urged me to investigate the case. Um, she was a wonderful lady. Her name was Rosalind Wilkins. Um, she's no longer alive, but she was, um, I became really um, good friends with her and she was very supportive throughout um, the whole process. Um, needless to say, she was very concerned that uh, the police were responsible for um, Niza's death. So, um, I've stayed interested all these years because of the stonewalling regarding the transparency issue. You know, in my opinion, it's not reasonable for authorities to be withholding so many records in a homicide case where police are implicated. So this pro prolonged stonewalling um, actually um, fuels my determination to keep going. Mm-hmm. And we need, um, we definitely need reporters like you. Um, if, you know, the community has been demanding more transparency from the police, um, especially in the wake of, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and everything that has happened recently with like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and just so many mm -hmm. others that we can't name. And just seeing a case like this that goes back so many years, it just goes to show you you know, how how broken our criminal legal system is when it comes to police transparency and accountability. Out of all the details that you shared about the case, I mean, there are so many um, troubling points, but what, what do you believe to be, you know, one or two of the most troubling points in the story and the evidence that you've kind of found over the years? I would say the fact that police can't give a span of time when they weren't with NISA prior to her head injury. That's um, very concerning to me. Um, also, this incident took place in the 9th Police District, which covers Center City west of Broad. And in 2002, when NISA died, there were no other homicides in that 9th Police District except Niza's homicide. The area simply wasn't a high crime area in 2002. So even if there were a brief interval of time when police weren't with Niza, I, I just have trouble imagining who would have slipped in and killed her. It just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like a very plausible scenario to me. And then um, another troubling thing to me um, is that both the DA's office and the police have told me repeatedly that they don't have any 911 recordings in their Mars homicide file. Um, in my opinion, you can't have a reasonable investigation of Niza's homicide 
without any 911 recordings. Um, so that's uh, another troubling aspect of the case. Um, and I'd also like to point out um, that two other officers, in addition to Officer Scala, can be heard on the tapes. And they're Kenneth Novak and Thomas Burry. And their actions that morning also are very questionable. So I just don't want to say that it's just all Officer Scala that was involved, because we're, we're really not clear about the actions of two other officers that can be heard on these tapes. And I got access to the tapes shortly after Niza died by someone who I can't, who, who can't be named, but but they're in my possession, and um, it's very troubling that um, these audio tapes are not in um, either the police or the DA homicide file. The last I checked, and I've checked repeatedly. Hmm. So those those are some of the very troubling things about the case. So do they do they claim that they lost the files? Like, do they claim they lost the tapes, and that's why they're not in the file? Um, they're just telling me that they don't have any um, 911 recordings in their homicide file, mm -hmm. and and I find that I I find that out when I file the right to know request. But unfortunately, when you file a right to know request, they they don't have you can't ask them additional questions. You just can say, like, do you have these records? If they say no, you can't say why not, what happened to them. You know, they're they're just they're not being candid about it. And the law really doesn't require them to as far as the right to know law. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that I'm hoping we'll get more information as the case moves along. But I do have many records and um you know, as we can talk about later I am I am trying to get additional records. And although the case is now almost two decades old, I still think that it's very relevant, um, especially um, today. Um, there's disturbing data out there that shows, you know, the average life expectancy of a Black trans woman is only 35 years old. Um, and this is due to a lot of factors, the main being that, you know, discrimination within our countries white supremacist patriarchal system kind of forces trans people, especially black trans women into harmful situations and environments. And violence against black trans women is considered an epidemic across the country. I know that you can't really speak about, you know, all violence that happens against black trans women, but just knowing this, how, how do you think this case kind of differs from other acts of violence against trans women? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, like you said, I really can't speak to the other cases because I haven't investigated them. But Niza's case appears to be unique in Philadelphia because it's the only murder of a trans person where police are implicated, to, to my knowledge. There may be others, but they haven't been brought to my attention. Also, it's the only trans murder case in Philly Whereas there's been so much difficulty gaining access to um, records that could help explain what happened, hmm. and um, and this has been going on for 18 years. Um, one would think that um, there would be an open door policy to at least look at the records and clear up any questions about, um, you know, what might have what might have occurred with the um, police that were in Niza's presence that morning. Um, but uh, so far, um, total transparency has been elusive. We've, we've had, I've had access to many records, um, but there are others that would really help explain more fully um, the police version of events. And then we could go from there. Yeah. Speaking of um, transparency, um, just time and time again, we see the harm that lack of police transparency and accountability causes um, to our communities. And it often makes it so people never receive the justice they deserve. Um, what do you hope comes out of this long battle in regards to police transparency? Yeah. I mean, I hope that this 18-year-long struggle 
for transparency in NISA's case adds to the momentum for police accountability. And I, I do, like as you said earlier, I do believe the momentum greatly increased after deaths um, such as the death of Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many others due to police violence. Um, I can't say that NISA um, death was caused by police violence, but um, until we get more information, that possibility um, cannot be ruled out. So mm-hmm. I, I do think it helps with the overall momentum that's building for accountability. Yeah, I, I would agree um, with that. No matter how old a case is, I think, you know, justice being served or just um, that that knowledge kind of coming to the surface, um, I think the community deserves that. And I think if we are able to find that out, it will allow us to hold our officials to like a, a better standard. So I know you share with me the subpoena um, for, for files and you've been working uh, with your attorney um, AJ, can you give us a little bit more background on that case um, and where it stands? Sure. Um, as, as we speak, um, PGN has litigation that's pending in Common Police Court to try to get additional records regarding the Niza Morris case. Um, and the paper recently um, subpoenaed um, DA Larry Krasner to attend a July 19th court hearing and to bring the DA office's entire um, Niza Morris homicide file to the hearing. Um, We don't know um, whether this subpoena will be honored, but we're hoping Mr. Krasner will comply with the subpoena and that he'll be open to releasing these records, you know, so that um, Niza's homicide can be understood to the fullest extent possible. And is there is there any way um, for I guess the public to kind of get involved and maybe add some extra pressure to to DA Krasner? Yes, um, and that gets to your other question about why, um, even though this case is 18 years old, why is it so um, important to keep pushing for justice? And I say it's important, um, and this can be expressed to Mr. Krasner and Mayor Kenny. It's just um, someone was murdered, and that fact um, will never change. There's no um, there's no statute of limitations on murder, and as long as homicide records are hidden away, um, it, I, I really I'm not optimistic about you know cracking this case, but um, if if people can convey to D.A. Krasner and Mayor Kenny the importance of the transparency, I think that um, there may be a chance that there'll be some modicum of justice. At least these records won't be hidden anymore, and um, we'll have enough, uh, you know, more transparency that we can go from there. If, if our listeners kind of wanted to keep like following this story, um, how would you recommend that they do that? Well, there's a lot of information about the case on PGN's website, which gets updated early, regularly. And um, I think that would be a good way to do it. Um, and then I would just repeat once again, they, they can also just reach out to the law enfor- the local law enforcement officials, express their support um, for justice for NISA, let them know that 18 years of stonewalling is long enough, NISA deserves better, and her family and loved ones also deserve um, a modicum of closure. Thank you so much, Tim, for just um, sharing this story with us and bringing it to the public's attention. So thank you for having me. 
And if people want to like follow your um, work and your reporting, um, is, is the best place to do that to just go to the, the PGN website or do you have like social media handles or anything that you want to put out there? The best way is to just go to the PGN website, just Google Philadelphia Gay News. And then there's a search bar and you can just put in Niza Morris and then um, the coverage comes right up. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our next guest is Paula Knudsen Burke. Hi, Paula. We're so happy to have you here. And I would just love it if you could just give us a little bit about your background before we jump right into some questions. Sure. Um, I actually am so thrilled to be on the ACLUPA podcast because I am an alumni of alumna of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I was the Harrisburg staff attorney for about four years. Um, so it's an organization that's near and dear to my heart. I've worked at the ACLU legal services and also in the fields of media and journalism. My undergraduate degrees were in journalism and Spanish. So my current position kind of marries together my two interests of the law and the media. I am um, an attorney with the uh, Pennsylvania, I'm the Pennsylvania attorney for the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. It is a nonprofit based out of DC that provides pro bono legal services to journalists. And last year, the Reporters Committee launched a program called the Local Legal Initiative, where we placed um, five lawyers in five states, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Tennessee. So I get to help uh, journalists throughout the state of Pennsylvania with things like open records and open meetings. Oh, that's wonderful. And once a part of the ACLU family, always a part of the ACLU family. That's right. Um, so is it, was it your background in, um, um, you're working with like the journalists and getting the open records, did that kind of lead you to be um, involved in the Morris case or? I, I, yeah, I've been following it since I worked at the Pennsylvania News Media Association, which is a trade association for newspapers throughout the Commonwealth. Um, I became familiar with Tim's work on the case um, probably 10 years ago when I was working at the Newspaper Association. And I was just kind of overwhelmed with, um, you know, what happened in the case and so impressed by how dogged Tim's reporting was and um, how he continued to push and push in the face of a lot of obstacles. So it's a case that, that I've followed for years now and one that um, I am hoping will bring some justice uh, at some point and some transparency. And I think, you know, the recent um, court action is something that's, that's a move in the right direction. And from an attorney's perspective, what are some of the holes and problems you see with how this case has been handled? I mean, <laughs> this case has gone on for for many years, and it's had kind of a tortured path through the court system. Um, and one of the things, you know, because the case has gone on so long, it's passed from one tenure of a district attorney to the next. It's passed from uh, one head of the police department to the next. So there's been a lot of turnover. And part of the turnover um, has impacted this case kind of in terms of public policy, um, who thinks what records should be released, and also more practically, where those records are. Um, and I know one of the things that Tim has been pushing for for many years is really trying to find out where various records are, who has them, have any of the records been lost. And as time goes by, in any case, whether it's a right to know case or a criminal case or a civil case, time um, is not in um, the favor of fact finding because people's memories um, kind of lose their sharpness and records get misplaced. So 
you know, the more time that goes on, there's various reasons about why it's harder to find out what actually happened at any particular point in time. And in this situation, you know, we're talking about almost 20 years. So it's, it's not an insignificant amount of time. Yes, definitely. Um, the, the amount of time that this case has just lingered and the lack of information is definitely just very troubling and lack of transparency as well on the um, part of the police. As you mentioned, um, it, it has been so long since the murder happened, um, almost two decades, and evidence may have been tampered with, thrown away, or never properly documented. Do you think justice is even possible? Um, if so, what could it realistically and legally look like? That's a great question. I mean, I think this current phase of the litigation that the Philadelphia Gay News is pursuing in front of Judge Roberts in Philadelphia is really interesting as it pertains to is justice and transparency possible? And I've been following that case, and I know that um, based on Tim's reporting in the Philadelphia Gay News and, and some of the docket entries I've seen, that uh, the next phase of the case will be trying to bring um, the current district attorney, Larry Krasner, into court. And of course, he would not have been the district attorney back in 2002, but he's the custodian, perhaps, of some records. And we know that he has talked at um, public meetings, particularly a meeting of the Liberty City LGBT Democratic Club um, earlier this year when he was questioned by the uh, Philadelphia Gay News publisher. And he said, you know, at at a minimum, could it, the family members at least know what happened with the investigation? So it seems like he's in favor of providing more records and and hopefully, you know, he'll follow through. And that would provide a measure of transparency and resolution, not only for the family, but members of the public who have been following this for many years through King's reporting. And, you know, on the question of safety and security for, for members of the LGBTQ plus community, this is certainly a case that has stood out in a negative way. And by releasing more records, maybe that sends a signal to say justice is equal for all, no matter what your uh, sexual orientation. So this is an important case and, and any more information that can be provided is going to help toward that ultimate question of justice and transparency. But, you know, we don't know yet what, what kind of records are going to be turned over, if there are even any. Yeah, um, and I talked to Tim about he, he subpoenaed for some files, um, and he's just fight, fighting for access to the files, and he has his attorney. Should these kinds of files be easier to get under our current laws? And I, I know you've done a lot of work around, you know, right to know laws and the Sunshine Act. So could you explain maybe a little bit more like why accessing files has been so difficult in this particular case? Yes, I would love to explain that and talk about it. So our current right to know law, the, the state public records law, has been in existence for about a dozen years now. It was revamped um, back in 2008. And at that time, the Office of Open Records was created, which is a place where citizens can appeal and, and go through, for certain cases, a process that's less complicated than court. Um, and one of the things the Office of Open Records looks at is the law uh, and the exceptions to the law. There are 30 um, exceptions to the public records law, but as, as a preliminary measure, it's important to know that when the law changed, the presumption of access was in favor of the public. Up until the law changed back in 2008, the presumption was flipped that members of the public had to fight to get records. Now, records are presumed to be public unless a certain exemption applies. And even then, if a government agency says, you know what, in our you know, consideration of this case, 
we think that releasing the records is the right thing to do. They exercise their discretion. It's in the public interest. Even then, they can still re release it. So one of those exemptions um, that's really hard to get around, and it comes into play for this case, is the criminal investigation exemption. So if you put in a records request, like Tim did here multiple times, looking for records related um, to Ms. Morris's death, what he would run into is a denial based on an active criminal investigation. And one of the things that makes Pennsylvania's law on this point different than other states is that our criminal investigation exemption doesn't have any end. So there have been instances where people have filed right to know requests for cases that are decades old, um, 50, 60, 70 years old, and there's no limit on how long a law enforcement agency can say, no, we're sorry, that's a criminal record, you can't have it. So that's one of the problems um, about these kinds of records. Another problem is a related exemption called the non-criminal investigation exemption. So if there was an internal investigation, um, you know, some review by the police advisory commission or the police department or the district attorney's office that wasn't criminal in nature, that could still be used as a reason to deny access to records. So this is something that, that comes up in this case and cases all across the Commonwealth where um, access to important details about the criminal justice system cannot be obtained because of these exemptions in the law. Oh, wow. So, so even if they're not actually actively investigating a case and it's just kind of sitting in a file cabinet, you still can't get those records. Um, That's right. And uh, a, report, a reporter and author um, who wrote a book about the murder decades ago at Penn State University, um, a young woman was murdered in the library stack. He was able to get records related to that case from a different state be because their uh, criminal investigation law was different and more um, permissive than ours, but in Pennsylvania, when he asked the Pennsylvania State Police for records, he was denied, um, even though the case was many decades old. So that's, that's something um, that open records advocates and journalists throughout Pennsylvania find to be really frustrating, and it is not the case in other parts of the country. Some states have something like a 25-year limit after 25 years. Um, even if a case is still open or cold, for instance, records can be accessed. So that's definitely um, a stumbling block in a reporting like this that goes back many years, but is still considered an active investigation or a cold case. I'm just wondering, too, just with, um, with our current climate and our country and, and, you know, the just the movement for criminal legal reform and... Um, just police accountability, are there pathways right now to change this? Because, I mean, I, I can understand why you wouldn't want someone to access criminal records on an open um, case. Like if you think about like something typical um, that may be sensitive, but when it comes to, you know, um, the pol police committing violence against the community, it, it just seems like a major hole um, when it comes to accountability. Well, I'm sure uh, ACLUPA lobbyist Liz Randall would be able to speak to uh, the climate about reforms at the, the legislature, but police and law enforcement have a very strong lobby in Harrisburg, and there's frankly not a lot of appetite for changing laws in favor of transparency. There are bills that have been introduced um, to, to try to increase transparency as it relates to law enforcement. But some of these battles are being fought in court. In fact, right now, um, we represent uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and one of its reporters. They're trying to get records of police officers who were terminated from the force. And the city is um, 
uh, arguing that it cannot give the names of officers who were terminated, fired, until an arbitration process plays out. And that's years down the road in some cases. And that really uh, limits public understanding of police officers and actions that may have resulted in their termination when we can't know about it until years down the road. And in fact, one of the most basic things under the right to know law is name of a public employee, salary, start and stop time. And if a person is demoted or discharged, that information is a public record. So even, you know, under very basic kinds of records, like, um, you know, the stop time and the circumstances of termination, those are things that we're still fighting for. And that case is pending in Philadelphia right now. In fact, it's set for oral argument in July. And just thinking like legally, what are some ways we can keep this case alive and continue to fight for justice, especially um, when we're looking at, you know, black, brown and LGBTQ and T communities? Well, one of the things we didn't talk about yet, but definitely plays into that is the Sunshine Act. So uh, the ACLU actually has had three different pretty high profile Sunshine Act lawsuits in the past year. And a couple of them play into the question of justice for black, brown, and LGBTQ plus communities. Um, One of them was back in um, Montgomery County last year where the ACLU sued Montgomery County um, related to top public defenders who had spoken out about justice issues. Another was in March of this year in McKeesport on the other side of the state, the ACLU sued uh, under Sunshine Act because citizens were going to speak up about police mistreatment and their concerns about searches. So these issues, Um, can't be dealt with unless we have public opportunities to speak about them in public. That means the Sunshine Act, our state's Open Meetings Act, must be complied with the citizens, even if they're bringing up tough conversations about race and justice issues, they have the opportunity to be heard and tell their uh, decision makers, whether that's township, borough, city, um, state legislators, that they have that opportunity to share their concerns. Um, That's one piece of the puzzle. And the other piece of the puzzle, like Tim is is pursuing, we have to know what is happening with government, including law enforcement. And, you know, there's been a lot of reluctance to open up um, the book, so to speak, for various law enforcement um, procedures and processes. There's been fights over the years about contracts. Um, we talked about the, the police being terminated. So unless, you know, particularly in the space of criminal justice and justice for Black, Brown, and LGBTQ plus communities, we can't have justice unless we're having a transparent conversation, which means citizens have to have access to understand the inner workings of government, and they have to have the opportunity uh, to comment. And to participate in public meetings. So, you know, I think a huge underpinning of of your question about how can we keep uh, this case alive and continue fighting for justice in these underrepresented communities is through transparency. And that's a fight that continues um, in the legislature, in the courts, through right to know cases. And I'm just thrilled that Tim um, is continuing his work. And, you know, he's an award-winning journalist nationally for his work on this case. Um, Back in 2013, he won a very prestigious award from the Society of Professional Journalists um, for his work in this case. We don't get to know a lot of what is going on behind the scenes without the work of these dogged reporters like Tim. So One more thing I can say is if you're not supporting a local news outlet, whether that's public radio, um, your favorite online outlet, or your local um, TV or broadcast station through a subscription or advertising, we don't know what's happening if we don't have local news. So please, please, uh, that's my pitch um, to go out and subscribe to your local outlet um, and 
this particular shout out to the Philly Gay News and, and Tim for their outstanding reporting. Yes, I agree with that. Everything you just said. Um, and I am thankful that Tim is continuing this, um, not, not only for the public and um, transparency and advocacy, but also for um, Ms. Morris's family. I, I can only imagine that they've just been pain over this for just not having closure and knowing what happened to her all those years ago. But thank you so much for all of your insight and just and just bringing uh, your legal knowledge to this, this case and um, this episode. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and, um, you know, for lifting up this case into the light. And we're going to keep our fingers crossed for Tim and um, Ms. Morris's family that there is some justice here. Our next guest is Naima Sanchez. Hey, Naima, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you um, about the work that you're doing with trans justice and just what's going on in the trans community across the state, but especially in Philadelphia. Um, so we've been talking about the Niza Morris murder case. As a trans woman of color, can you tell us about the violence against the trans community that you've witnessed? So as a, a lifelong community activist coming from community-based organization to a larger organization like the ACLU, uh, I firsthand witnessed what violence, uh, violence and uh, injustice, but also uh, the community members that I provided resources for. Uh, you know, there is uh, an increase rate of, of violence that trans folks experience, especially black and brown trans women. Uh, we are uh, folks who are continuing to try to thrive to live our lives and uh, in everyday activities that we uh, try to engage with, simple and simple as riding a bus or going to a restaurant or going to work, uh, the lack of protections and the ignorance within uh, the general population against the trans community um, creates these uh, heightened uh, rates of, of violence and injustice. And with the, the Niza Morris case, it's a lot about police transparency and accountability since she was in police custody, um, either during the murder or shortly before. Can you speak to, or do you have any insight into what it's like in the criminal and criminal legal interactions um, within the trans community? Is there a lot of violence there? So I, I, I want to really speak truth to this statement because, I mean, a lack of trust that uh, Black and Brown folks experience with uh, connecting or, uh, you know, leaning on uh, law enforcement for support or safety is, is real, right? Uh, and when you think about the disproportionate impact that Black and Brown trans women and trans uh, community in general have is that we we haven't historically experienced an increase and uh, in, in not so much of uh, physical violence, but an injustice of ignorance of not knowing how to interact with a person. So it's it's the simple trust levels that community members have with law enforcement or the lack of trust levels that community members have with law enforcement. And then we get into this conversation of uh, around arrest and, and why are folks being arrested uh, especially uh, when we're talking about trans folks, you know, majority of folks are engaging in um, sex work. And we identify this as either survival sex work uh, or just sex work, right? And uh, police usually try to criminalize the behaviors that we are engaging with because it's their right to. So it's it's a way of creating harm within the community. So with the lack of trust that we have and, and the historical trauma that our communities and our inter intersecting communities have had with law enforcement, there is a big disconnect, right? Uh, so it just adds to the chances that either we're going to be violently assaulted uh, by the hands of someone in, in outside of our community, or we will be experiencing unjust by the hands of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You made some good points there. Um, and often when we talk about criminal legal reform is usually a conversation about racial disparities. Um, but why is it important for us to uplift intersectionalities and how disparities change when people are part of multiple marginalized groups? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, honestly, 
Um, to understand inter intersectionality is to understand the impacts that an individual experience because of those intersecting identities, right? And when we talk about uh, the, the intersections of race and gender, right, we, we understand that in the criminal justice system, black and brown folks are disproportionately impacted, especially black and brown um, men are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system. And then when we look at these numbers, as it pertains to black and brown folks who identify as transgender, transgender male, transgender female, or non-binary individuals, majority of folks who are incarcerated in the criminal justice system are there for um, low-level nonviolent offenses, um, which ultimately we are advocating for uh, folks never to be locked up, especially when they're nonviolent, uh, uh, nonviolent uh, criminal offenders, if, if you may. Uh, but uh, the the importance of understanding a person's individuality and understanding a person's intersectionality as it pertains to uh, impact issues is essential uh, as we create these uh, these avenues for change. Mm -hmm. Often too, just because um, of how our criminal legal system is set up, once in once in the system, it it becomes just way more difficult especially for like a trans person to navigate depending on you know what what jail they're in um often and you can expand on this but often you know they'll be misgendered and then further further mistreated once they're in police custody because officials in our criminal legal system don't properly know how to interact with um diverse communities I mean, you said it, you said it clear as day, you know, folks just don't know how to interact. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the misunderstanding um, or the misinterpretations of our community, especially trans and non-binary folks, uh, creates this like space of like, uh, as, a, as if our existence is a, a joke, right? Or they use the, the opportunity to misgender us in these settings of jails or, um, police custody, roundhouse or whatever, um, they use these uh, avenues, this 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 power um, to, to implement this harm. And again, there is physical harm and then there's mental harm that is caused, right? And just because uh, a person is not physically harming us doesn't mean that they're not harming us in, in any mental aspect of, 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 of their uh, initiatives, whether it's misgendering, whether it's, uh, you know, dead naming, whether it's putting us in housing units that creates unsafe um, um, factors for us, right? And, and when it comes to like the incarceration uh, aspect of this, you know, I, I really like to use my own uh, lived experience uh, when I discuss like the impacts that I have uh, because I, I bring a, more of a reality to the words that I'm saying. So like I was incarcerated for 19 months on pretrial and, uh, you know, going inside the prison, you know, unfortunately they house you by the genitalia that you have. Um, and they they try their, if you may, I'm, I'm gonna say if you may, they try with their best interest to create um, safety protocols, right? But they administered me to protective custody, which was 24 hours a day lockdown, right? That's pretty much the whole solitary confinement which added to the, the declining of my mental health as I'm sitting there in detention in a jail cell trying to figure out why am I here for something that is so, uh, you know, petty, right? Uh, and then also just thinking about like the risk of sexual assault inside of a jail, right? Uh, especially when you're in protective custody is this, again, in my own instincts is that I was locked down for 22 hours a day, only out for two hours a day for shower, uh, for phones, or for rec. And I'm using air quotes since this is a podcast. Uh, and the person that was creating the most harm on me was the person that was contracted, that was paid by this jail to protect me, which was the prison guard. I was sexually assaulted while in jail. And then I also was being criminalized for being me while I was incarcerated, the lockdown and solitary confinement was really a way of criminalizing me or, or saying bad job on you for being who you are. So while you are 
detain from the rest of society. We're going to detain you from general population. And they use it for, and they use it as for your own safety. But for, in my instance, my own safety would have been to put me in general population or really just to put me out on the streets, let me out of jail, then to lock me in the cell and allow uh, a person who had power to use their power to implement uh, harm on me. And thank you for sharing that personal story. It really is. It really is something that needs to be fixed. So I just have a final question for you. Um, what, what are some things that people can do to help the trans community and to work toward a day where something like the Nizamore case can never happen again? And, and the things that you mentioned um, just within our criminal legal system, all the problems that exist. Uh, I think the criminal justice reform is one way uh, to like reduce the, the the trauma that a trans person experience as it pertains to how folks are criminalized for what behaviors. Um, like I don't have a, a perfect answer, and I don't think there is a perfect answer to say what can we do now to prevent another person uh, from being murdered. Pride started because. A group of folks felt like we were done with being unjust by not just law enforcement, but by business owners, by our own community that were gay, lesbian, and queer, right? These are trans women, black and brown trans women who created this movement, right? And, and we have come 52 years since the first brick was thrown at Stonewall. And we've accomplished a lot, but we have so far to go. And, and trying to understand like, what is a perfect way to get to this liberation, to reduce the, the violence that trans women are experiencing, to reduce the, the rate of harm that community members experience by the hand of law enforcement is not an answer that I could just give on my own. This is a collective effort, right? That we, we all need to bring these ideas to like what we need as community members uh, to prevent us from being murdered, from being harmed by the ones who are paid to protect us, from us feeling unjust by a system that historically has created a culture of unjust within our community, right? I think that having this understanding of intersectionality and understanding that just because you are not directly impacted by these injustices doesn't, doesn't mean that you will not be systematically impacted by these injustices, right? If, if, if one of us are oppressed, all of us are oppressed, right? So until that day where we're all liberated, none of us are free here. And I, I think that's a perfect place to close. Thank you so much, Naima, for joining us and sharing your insight with us. That's Philadelphia gay news journalist, Timothy Swick, Reporters Committee attorney, Paula Knutson-Burke, and ACLUPA Trans Justice Coordinator Naima Sanchez. We're grateful that they could join us and for their advocacy around NISA and trans rights. That brings episode 63 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foule. Our music is from Ben Sound. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Cambria Lee. Until next time, be healthy and be free.